Welcome back to the Aquil Files. Our, our listeners know that the American College of Real Estate Lawyers is a national organization of more than 1,000 practitioners focused on experiences, ideas and experiences in the development, financing, and investment of real estate. We continue our series of podcasts with iconic real estate investors who have built the companies that have shaped the industry to share reflections on their careers and predictions you know, for the future. Today, we are pleased to welcome Owen Thomas, Chairman and CEO of Boston Properties, the largest publicly traded developer, owner, and manager of premier workplaces in the United States. Owen, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Jay, thank you for having me. Great to great to be with you and to uh, be on your program. Thank you. So before we talk about your incredible career at Morgan Stanley and, and BXP, let's roll the tape back a little bit and tell us about you know where you grew up, what influenced you to become a mechanical engineer and, and how you got to Charlottesville, maybe? Yeah, so, um, well, I grew up on a dairy farm uh, outside of Stanton, Virginia, which is in the uh, Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, Augusta County. And um, my uh, parents, <clears throat> when I became of high school age, I th they decided that um, they you know, wanted me to uh, get a better education than what was available locally. So I uh, was fortunate and uh, was uh, admitted to Woodbury Forest School in Orange, Virginia, and uh, was a, a scholarship re recipient, which I would not have been able to attend <clears throat> Woodbury if I hadn't received that scholarship. And it was a wonderful place, uh, which I'm sure we'll come back to in this interview. Um, and uh, while I was there, I um, it, I did fine, and I certainly excelled in math and science. And so I decided, and I didn't really like languages, so I decided I what I wanted to do is become an I wanted to try engineering. So uh, I was admitted at uh, UVA into the engineering school, and I picked uh, mechanical engineering because it was the most general. Uh, you know, you touched all the different disciplines as a mechanical engineer. And uh, when I finished at UVA, I decided, well, if I, I was a little bit uncertain whether I really wanted to do that or not. I definitely wanted to move into the business side of engineering and thought I would get an MBA one day. <laughs> but I decided, look, I, I should work at this for a while and really see what it's like. And so... Uh, I took a job at uh, Texas Instruments in Dallas um, as a mechanical engineer. And at that time, I don't know if the firm still does this, but they had a defense division and uh, I worked in that area. It was a kind of a vertical integration strategy, I believe, because uh, a lot of the equipment we were designing and uh, manufacturing used uh, Texas Instruments chips. So anyway, I moved to Texas. And, you know, for a year, I worked on the uh, creating tools for the assembly line for the Harpoon Missile Seeker, which is uh, a product that TI was manufacturing and created. And then a the second year, I worked on the uh, the design of the um, the uh, tank thermal site for the M1 Abrams tank, uh, believe it or not. So um, but anyway, while I was there, I, you know, it was fine company and fine people, but I learned a lot about what I didn't want to do. And I was fortunate and I was accepted to Harvard Business School. And um, and when I went to Harvard, uh, one of the classes I took was real estate. And I didn't mention this earlier, but when I grew up uh, 
uh, in the Shenandoah Valley. My father was a farmer, but he also was a real estate uh, broker and uh, developer. Uh, you know, he was a farmer, and so a lot of the other farmers trusted him, and he had a great business of representing them when they sold their properties, and we developed farms, and I worked in his office a lot when I was a boy, and anyway, so I, I had that itch that I didn't realize I had, and when I um, took some took a class and saw what the institutional real estate business was all about, you know, I, I got excited about it, and fortunately, Sitting right behind me in class was my friend, um, uh, John Kukrell, uh, who, as you know, at the time was at JMB, and he's gone on and had an amazing career in real estate, and he was an early mentor to me uh, in this journey. And so anyway, I interviewed and was fortunate and, um, to uh, get a job at Morgan Stanley as a first-year associate in the real estate department, and um, that's, that's how I, that's how I got into real estate. Well, I, I love the part about the math and science bent as a younger person, because that's what led me to engineering. Also, I knew I wasn't going to be very good in English or the literature or the arts. So <laughs> it was an engineering degree for sure. So, so you started at Morgan Stanley and you spent a <clears throat> long time in there in Asia, in New York. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your career, um, there. Yeah. Well, you know, when I started at Morgan Stanley, there we we were basically we had a model that's very similar to East Dills today. I mean, we were uh, representing property owners selling, um, I would say, generally trophy real estate, office buildings, hotels, and a lot of the buyers at that time were Japanese uh, investors, and that was why a firm like Morgan Stanley was capable in that area is because it had a global, it had global reach. You know, today that seems not very distinctive, but back then, you know, which was 1987, it was very distinctive. And interestingly, so I did that and I was a banker at first. <clears throat> um, but what happened was there was a real estate crash in, as you know, in 1990 and the firm's business really dried up. No buildings were selling. And frankly, the firm uh, shrank the group and it was a little unclear what the prospects were. Um, but what I didn't really fully realize is the seeds were being planted for a tremendous opportunity for Morgan Stanley and therefore for me, uh, because Wall Street became a lot more important to the real estate business as a result of that crisis. So what? why? So three things. One, um, REITs existed back then, but it was a small industry and it didn't attract a lot of institutional investor interest. It was mainly retail. Well, during right. that time. Right. And it was mortgage REITs back then, as I recall. A lot of mortgage REITs, smaller companies. I don't think there were a lot of institutions that were investing. It was mainly retail. But what happened in that early 90s is a lot of very significant companies, Simon Property Company, uh, other Boston Properties was in the 1997. Um, these companies, they needed to raise capital and one way to do it in a tax efficient manner was to go public. Uh, Morgan Stanley was involved in the first upread uh, IPO, which was Taubman Centers, which occurred in the early to mid 1990s. So that created a whole new industry that where investment bankers were quite relevant, right? When they raised uh, equity or uh, unsecured debt, you know, that's what investment bankers do, not, not real estate brokers. So that really helped the business. And then second, debt securitization. 
there was very limited debt securitization before the 1990s. And, you know, Morgan Stanley built up a very large uh, and leading debt securitization business, which, again, lent itself very well to the skills of a broker dealer because you're um, uh, creating these uh, pools of mortgages or individual asset mortgages and uh, um, dividing up the cash flows and you have rated securities that are distributed in the fixed income market. So that that lent itself very well to uh, Wall Street participation. And then lastly, my predecessors very wisely said, look, this is in the 1990s, this was kind of the resolution trust era. They said, look, we ought to get in the principal business. At that time, Morgan Stanley had a very um, successful merchant bank and uh, the pension funds of General Motors and AT&T were leading investors in that uh, activity. And so my bosses at the time, very astutely, you know, went to those uh, pension funds and raised uh, the first real estate fund at Morgan Stanley. It was about $500 million. And I think it was raised in 92 or 93. So um, uh, so anyway, so so now we went from, you know, very little business to now three major sectors that grew um, significantly for the next decade and a half all of which were quite relevant uh, to, uh, to, to Wall Street. And so that helped me. Um, you know, as I moved, uh, moved along, I uh, ultimately ended up working and then running our principal business in real estate. And then, again, as time evolved, I ran both the principal and the banking um, side of uh, Morgan Stanley Real Estate. And then uh, we had some leadership changes at the firm and uh, John Mack uh, returned to Morgan Stanley after he had been at Credit Suisse and he asked me to run the asset management division, which I did for three years. And then we had some more management changes and um, the position of head of Asia for Morgan Stanley, not just real estate, but for the firm uh, became available. And uh, in my work in Morgan Stanley real estate, I had done a lot in Asia. A lot of our investments were in Japan and China and uh, around the region. I had traveled there a lot and and knew certainly a lot of people internally and externally and had some experience with it. So they asked me to go over and do that, <clears throat> which I did um, until I left the firm in 2011. So tell talk a little bit about how you I mean, you, as you say, you've been in all these different pockets of the industry, right? And and you know, and of course now you're leading, um, you know, BXP, this major office street. But tell us how you're in your mind, the transition and your thinking, and how you're analyzing what you're doing and investing when you're going from being a banker to being a principal. Yeah. Well, you know, that's an interesting uh, I concept because. I did for a while, I, I experienced both. And also then I led teams of people that did both. And we actually did have people, you know, transition from one side of the business uh, to the other. Um, so, um, and I do, I do think, you know, being financially astute and smart and hardworking and all that stuff, you know, I think transcends both, both sides of the business. Um you know, I think the principal side, you know, obviously you're you're deciding what to do and you're making those decisions and, you know, living with the outcomes. And often on the banking side, you know, you're not doing it yourself. You're advising others on what they should do. And it tends to be a little bit broader on the banking side. You know, I think you're spinning more plates, so to speak, in terms of talking to lots of different clients about their different activities. It probably has more breadth. 
you know, than the principal side, but it's, it's, it's very different. And I think different people, um, you know, uh, are attracted to each side, you know, for different reasons based on their own skill sets and, and how they like to uh, conduct business. Okay. So tell us as now, as you know, as a principal and, you know, running this wonderful, successful, great company, how do you analyze deals and opportunities and risks? Yeah. Well, that's a pretty broad question. I think the, um, I think the first thing you have to say is, you know, what are your organization's competitive strengths and where can you actually um, outperform others? You know, markets are reasonably efficient and they're highly competitive and you have to be, I think, very self-aware as to where you have an edge. You know, in Morgan Stanley, we had a global footprint and we were very well connected with each other uh, because of the strength of the culture of the firm. And so we were able to be very nimble in moving around to different markets around the world that made the most sense. Um, you know, fast forward to BXP, that's not the case. You know, we're not global. Um, we're U.S. focused. And in fact, even in the U.S., we're focused on six cities. And further, we're focused on um you know, I would say primarily premier workplaces, as you said, we do have some actionable adjacencies. So I, I think the first thing is identifying where you have a competitive strength and be focused and don't get distracted by other things. So that's one. And then I think second, you have to, um, you know, have a view as to what's going on in the world around you and timing. You know, timing is so important. You know, what's the economy doing? What are interest rates doing? What is this particular city and location doing and is it going to continue to grow or is it going to fall off and kind of getting those timing uh, issues right uh, is is really important. Um, so I think that's that's probably second. And then I think being disciplined, um, you know, I don't I, numbers are the skeleton of a deal. They're not the flesh and the blood, but they are the skeleton of a transaction. And so you got to know your numbers and you have, and if the numbers, you know, the returns get to a level that don't make sense, you have to be disciplined and say no, you know, and move on to the next deal. I, I think there are things that are strategic in real estate that you can lean into, but I think you can't get carried away with that. You know, I think um, every deal has to stand on its own you know, and be successful. So I think that's important. And then I think lastly, you know, certainly in the latter um, half to two thirds of my career, you know, I approach this question more as a leader than a deal, um, than a deal person. And so to me, what's really important is to have the right people on the field and to have people that can one, identify the risks in a particular situation and also other people that can identify the opportunity and what the upside is and having a culture and a process where those people can interact um, in, a, um, in a constructive manner to achieve the right decisions. And I think if you can do that, um, if you can do those four things, I think you can be quite successful. So your, your sweet spot for years, right, for BXP and Boston Properties before going public was development. And you, but you know, you've recently over the years you've bought existing assets like Embarcadero and Seattle and and LA. Talk a little bit about what the difference is when you're going through those analysis and 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 how you are evaluating development opportunities versus existing assets. Yeah, 
I think, you know, to start with some of the overlay that I just gave you, um, you know, first of all, I think development is a real competitive strength for BXP. You know, there are there are other developers, but it's I think there are a lot more people that buy buildings than build them. And so by definitely, particularly in the cities where we operate. So just starting day one, I just feel like we have much more of a competitive strength. The firm, a lot of investors won't invest in developments because they have had negative experiences about cost overruns, timing issues, and so forth. And at BXP, we have a very strong track record of delivering projects on time and under budget because it's part of our culture and we have people that are experienced in doing it. So just by definition, having the capital and having the confidence in your team to do these things is a competitive advantage. So to compare, um, you know, first of all, development does have more risk. I mean, you have to, um, and you know, when you talk about development too, you have two different types, right? You have speculative development where you're not leased, and then you have lease development. But even the, you know, let's compare a leased development to purchasing a building. You know, you still have to deliver that building on time and on budget, and things can happen. And so, by definition, in comparison, we would want a higher initial cash yield for a development than we would for an acquisition because it inherently comes with risk. And further, we would want a higher projected initial yield for a speculative development than a leased one because now that's not only got the execution risk of building the building, but you also have the leasing risk of being able to fill the building. So they require higher yields. I mean, frankly, on the acquisition side, we don't buy stabilized core buildings at low cap rates because that's not creating any value for shareholders. So the acquisitions that we've made are buildings that are something's going on. There's lease turnover. Maybe the prior owners haven't invested in the property, but we like the bones. You know, we think the building has great potential. It's in a great location. It's undervalued because of its leasing status, its underinvestment, the ownership that has it, whatever it may be. And so we look at those as development projects as well, uh, but they're you know of, of less scale. I remember when Mord bought Embarcadero Center, right? And the numbers yeah. seemed so high. And of course he was so prescient, right? Because I think the rents were in the 30s or 40s when he bought it. And they ran up to 100 and, uh, and more. And it was obviously a great property with, as you say, great bones. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and still is. So let, let's let's fast forward a little bit to this um, um, era that we're in today, right? Um, and, and the challenges, and we can talk a little bit about that. Your your um, competitor, Steve Steve Roth, said just I think yesterday, right, that you know Friday Friday offices is dead forever, right? <laughs> Mondays Mondays yeah. at risk, and you know we can talk a little about that, and I've um, I've heard you talk about that, and and I know Premier Workplaces is a, I'm sure, a very carefully chosen, you know, um, describer of Boston properties because having had the good fortune to be in at least two Boston properties buildings, both ground up development. I mean, I can attest to everything you said. The teams built and delivered terrific buildings on time, and 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 we were, you know, very happy tenants in, bo in both of those buildings. Um, so today. How are you looking at sort of the market um, and what do you see 
um, in the, you know, near to medium term for future, let's say, you know, one to two years. Yeah. Well, Jay, I think when you look today, you've got two things going on. Uh, one is this whole remote work phenomena. And then second, economic, the economy. Last year, BXP leased space. We leased 5.8 million square feet of space. A normal year pre-pandemic was 6 million. And last year, the economy was fine, more or less, and less people were in the office. This year, we're leasing space at half a million to a million feet a quarter. So that's, you know, two to four million square feet. Um, and there's a lot more people in the office. So to me, it's pretty obvious the big impact on office right now is higher interest rates and a recession amongst our clients uh, who are all, you know, they have there's less capital market activity, there's less legal activity, technology firms aren't growing the way they were. They're all taking less space. That's a much bigger impact. So, so let me break down those two things for a minute. So on, on remote work, there are clearly some, some permanent changes. You know, I do think there's going to be generally more flexibility. Um, and I also think that people that work in support areas like IT, uh, HR, accounting, those workers are be going to be coming into the office less. Um, but I am confident that companies that, you know, are competing head to head with one another, like banks and law firms, and where you have uh, talent that, you know, the, the um, very, very talented workers that have to work together collaboratively to create success for their companies, they're going to work in person. All the bosses are trying to figure out how to get more people back in the office. And these are the clients that we serve. I mean, we, BXP prides itself on on having, um, you know, we're the the high end of the market, if you will. We want to have and do have premier buildings for which we charge a premier a, pro, um, a premium rent. And I do think those those the, those clients that have those kinds of workers need to work together to collaboratively to be successful. And but I do think so. That kind of leads to the next issue, which is this whole quality uh, flight to quality that's occurred in office. Because that's that what I just described is contributing to it, right? So those premium customers that can pay a premium rent, they're working more in person, and therefore that end of the market has been less impacted. However, if you have buildings that are um, primarily housing support workers, which tend to be the lower quality and cheaper alternatives, those are suffering more um, because one, companies are needing to get into better space to attract their people back to the office, but also a lot of the support workers that were working in there are not coming in. So if you look at, um, we had um, CBRE do some work for themselves, uh, which we publish about the premier end of the market. And they went out and defined it in the five cities where we have buildings in the central business district. And they identified 17% of the space and about 10% of the buildings that they thought were premier. And those buildings, you know, the rents are going up versus the rest of the market's going down. The net absorption of space is positive. Um, over the last little over two years, it's been 6 million feet, or it's been like minus 26 million feet for everything else. And the vacancy is much lower. It's probably 50, you know, it's probably 10 or 11% versus 16 plus percent for the non-premier. So, 
so that's helping you know certainly our uh, performance um, in in this environment and I you know there's a lot of questions about well can some of these B properties be converted to A and I'm sure there's some examples of that but generally the clients that we are dealing with are not looking at those kinds of buildings they want to be in the best assets because they want to attract their people back to the office and they're not looking at those from a value perspective. Have you, I mean, I think it goes without saying that Boston Properties has always built first class office properties. And and as you say, that that obviously works um, quite well in the flight to quality. But, you know, we read a lot about, you know, amenitized space and new things being done to get people to want to come back to the, their office buildings to, to work in their offices. How Have you guys thought differently about how you amenitize um, your buildings in the last couple of years? Yeah, I think it fits well into a strategy that we've always employed. I mean, I'll give you an example. I'm sitting here at 599 Lex, which is 53rd and Lex. And before COVID, we came up with a plan to change this food court we had at 601 Lex uh, right across the street to a new food hall called the Hue, which is, uh, and we, we we were working on it. We didn't do it because of COVID, but we were working on it during COVID and it's opened, you know, a year plus ago. And it's been a great hit uh, for not only the clients in our building, but it's become a bit of a food destination here in, in uh, East Midtown. So, I, you know, again, I, I can go through the whole portfolio and tell you what we've done to it to further amenitize it. And some of those projects we started before COVID and some of them we didn't. Um, I do think maybe there are a few things that are a little bit different. <clears throat> you know, I do think a meeting space that's uh, broadly available in buildings, I think, is much more interesting and important to clients today. So they don't have to lease that big all hands conference room that they can lease it when they need it from the building. I think that's really important. Um, I think food offerings, you know, what's happening in our cities because of the three to four days a week, a lot of restaurants and so forth have closed. So if you can provide, you know, high quality grab and go food in your buildings uh, or make sure it's available in the neighborhood, I think that's, uh, that's very important. You know, one thing not to, don't forget this about our business, <laughs> which I think, you know, what we provide is a location, you know, a geometry of the floor, amenities in the neighborhood, glass line, ceiling height, that kind of thing. And then we lease that, that space to our clients and then they build it out for their own use. And so um, in some cases, I think the build outs that we're seeing are very similar to what they were pre-COVID. I would say maybe there's a little bit more uh, more private office, you know, dedicated workspace, because when people come in, you know, they want to have their own dedicated workspace. I do think less conference rooms that are enclosed and more uh, living room type space, because if people were working from home, why can't, couldn't they work in a more living room like environment uh, in inside their space? But our clients determine that. You know, they hire their own architects and they have their own ideas about what they need to be successful. And every client's a little different because they're all doing different things and they have different cultures. So you mentioned fle flexible space earlier. And as I heard you speak at uh, once at Wharton years ago, I mean, at one point, you know, you, you had lots of space, like, at least to WeWork, but without focusing on WeWork, you know, I interviewed Sandeep um, you know, just after he had, was transitioning. I mean, do, what's your view on the, long-term presence of co-working and, and flexible space? 
Yeah. Um, I think that it is here to stay and it is an important part of the business, but I think it's going to be, you know, 5% or less of office space. I don't think it's a huge phenomenon. You know, there were reports that came out in the peak of the WeWork frenzy about, you know, a quarter of the space, you know, becoming flexible. What people don't, I, I think what the market doesn't realize is, you know, flexibility works both ways. So you just think, oh, the client can leave and it's flexible anytime they want, but flexibility is also for the landlord. And so what if we found a tenant that would pay more and we could kick out the, you know, theoretically, not suggesting we would do it, but theoretically we could dislodge, you know, the client that's in space because we had a better option. So if you're a, you know, a, a client that's, um, well-capitalized and has a strategy and knows what it wants to be and has a workforce. They want to have great space. They want to fit it out their, their way. They want to brand it. They want to create um, connectivity with their employees in that space. And they want quiet enjoyment and they don't want a uh, dislocation like that. So, so where I think it works and it definitely works like this for us is we have some of these fantastic complexes like the Prudential Center in Boston or or Reston Town Center, for example, in Virginia. And we often there will be a client that's a startup. They have, you know, 10 employees. They're working on an idea. They don't know what how big they're going to be or frankly, if they're even going to exist in a year or two. But they just want space as soon as possible and they want to be at the Prudential Center. That's the kind of client, that's the kind of business that I think makes the most sense for us. So, for example, at the Prudential Tower, we have a, a floor um, that is uh, flexed by BXP. And those are exactly the kind of clients that we have in that space. You know, it's they're furnished. We provide Wi-Fi. It's month to month. And then hopefully, um, if they're successful and they like the center, then they can become um, a more traditional client for us and sign a longer term lease in a built out, you know, spec suite, or maybe do a longer term lease in their own, in their own space. So I view it as this is a way for us to attract more clients into some of our great properties. You know, it's a little bit like, um, if you build an apartment building, right, you don't build all one bedrooms. You've got two bedrooms, three bedrooms, studios, you know, and if you think about office, you do have that spectrum as well. You've got you know, single asset corporate headquarters, you've got, you know, multi-floor uh, long-term leases with clients, you got single floor. And then we do have a spec suite business where we build out suites and lease them uh, for say three to five years with clients. And then this is kind of even um, more flexible than that, which is you can do a month to month. Uh, you kind of have to take it as it is. And, you know, and some of the clients do move out and by the way, the other the other issue that I like about that business is that when someone leaves, there's generally someone else to take the space. But if you're leasing like a huge floor to an enterprise client and they leave completely, you know, it takes a long time to um, refill that floor. So it's a little bit easier to manage from our perspective if you focus on the smaller clients. Right. So you've created as have several other of your competitors, right? Your own sort of incubator spaces. Exactly. Uh, help you in the, you know, life cycle, right? Of, of tenancy. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it does two things. It one, it keeps some of our space occupied, but it also allows us to attract more uh, potential clients into some of our great properties. Right. So Boston Properties has also been a great leader on sustainability and, and climate issues. Ben Myers spoke with at our conference last year, was, was terrific. I just saw recently that you closed another one of your green bonds, yeah. um, raising $750 million. Tell us about how you think about using that capital. Yeah. Well, the green bonds, so we, we were, we're an unsecured issuer anyway. You know, every year we're doing, you know, we have, um, you know, a $7 billion plus or minus debt stack unsecured that has 10 year maturities. So we're, you know, we have 700 million plus or minus maturing every year. And that, by the way, that's by design because we don't want to capitalize the whole firm, you know, at any one point in time in the interest rate market. And also it allows us that access to capital because we're not issuing too much every year. So given that we use that capital generally to build, you know, lead platinum or lead gold properties, we're able to uh, um, basically um, categorize our these most recent bond issues as quote green bonds. And when we started doing this five years ago, I'm not sure it really mattered that much. It was a nice thing to do, but I think what we're finding today is that um, there's a pretty large category of investors that are looking for green bonds. So it adds to the debt book. And I do think it brings the cost of those debt issues down, um, not a huge amount, but maybe maybe five to 10 basis points. Mm -hmm. um, but that's helpful. You know, when you think about the type of the quantums of debt that we issue, you know, that's that's a meaningful, meaningful number. I also, <clears throat> we, I don't know the exact number and it's hard to figure out, but we think there's also quite a large number of ESG investors that own our shares. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what exactly the percentage is. It's, it's probably closer to 10 than it is 50, <laughs> but it's growing. And so, uh, you know, what we, um, <clears throat> investors can obviously buy and sell our shares, you know, any day. So, you know, the fact that we're attracting additional investors that are focused on our sustainability performance is a, is a positive for all shareholders. Right. Good. Um, so you've over your career dealt with lots of professional advisors in all kinds of baskets um, in, in, in the finance and development world. What, what would you say characterizes the best of your professional advisors, be it, you know, the brokers or the lawyers? Yeah, I think um, I would say, well, obviously expertise, <laughs> you know, people that have done, have had a lot of clients and have done a lot of business that is relevant to what we're trying to accomplish. So, I mean, that's kind of obvious, but that's where you have to start. And then second, um, someone who is relationship oriented and is focused on us uh, as a significant client and is always available to us and pays attention to us always, not just when we're trying to do a deal. I think that's very important. And then I do think maybe this is a little bit more on the financial side than the legal side, but clients that'll just give us the best advice, whether it involves us doing something or not. Uh, but, you know, they're always, they're putting themselves in our shoes and giving us the advice, their best advice based on what's best for our company. And, you know, those those three things, uh, I think, make for um, 
you know, strong, strong advisors, whether it be legal, uh, financial or otherwise. Okay. Well, this is great. You know, uh, BXP, I would say too, you know, the, we're a big company by assets, but we're not a big company by people. You know, our, our, we only, we have, you know, depending on how you measure it, 30 to $40 billion of assets, and we only have 750 people. So your question, Jay, is an important one to us because, you know, we outsource a lot of legal services, you know, architects, uh, general contractors on the construction side, security services. I mean, we we probably employ more people outside the firm uh, than inside. And, ju and just like inside, you generally collaborate with the best of the best. Yes, we try to. Right. Um, so... Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I've got a few, just a few last questions for you. Um, and the first one would be, you know, back to what we were talking about, about the challenges of the time we're in, the, the economy, the interest rates, the back to office. You know, you, you guys have expanded your own life sciences now. You can have some multifamily. But if, if somebody was coming to you and saying, you know, you know, sovereign wealth fund or high net worth, family office and said, you know, I have a hundred million dollars to invest in, in real estate. Um, what would your advice to them be? Um, well, the first thing is I would ask some more questions. Um, uh, in other words, what's your term of investment and what's your risk appetite? Uh, because you can, there are lots of, you know, there's lots of different things you might pursue based on the answers to those questions. However, I mean, I think one thing that's going on today that's fascinating and I think a great investment is um, junior debt on high quality office buildings is trading at, you know, right now, I think 12 to 14 percent total returns. And, um, you know, there's um, in the office world, sentiment is worse than reality uh, for quality buildings. There's no doubt about it. And as a result, um, you know, you should be, and, and, and so that's number one. And number two, people that own high quality things are not going to sell them um, uh, or probably finance them if they don't have to because of the cost of all that. So what you need, what I would focus on is where are securities trading publicly against those assets. And certainly one of them is debt. Uh, and against these high quality assets are trading at very high yields. And, you know, I'm not probably not supposed to say this, but I mean, our stock uh, trades at a 7% uh, dividend yield. It's usually three. And the look through cap rate is 9%. I promise you, you couldn't buy buildings that we own at a 9% cap rate. So again, I kind of goes to my theme, <clears throat> pick the sector that the sentiment is worse than the reality and look for the public securities. And, and do you think that we'll see given the way the stocks have gotten battered with plenty of good underlying assets and um, net asset value, do you think that we'll see, you know, more combinations in the public public markets now, more buying, you know, by, by big funds? How will that play out? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I do think the, um, I do think there's kind of broad recognition in the market that a lot of these office companies, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them do trade at pretty big discounts. Um, we just went to our NAREIT conference and we had a real outpouring of investor interest in learning about uh, what was happening at the company and 
I think the issue that uh, investors are thinking about is we think it's inexpensive, but what is the timing for the recovery? Um, you know, in the public markets, public market investors don't have an infinite time frame. You know, timing is important to them. And so I think that's the issue. I don't think it's the it's not a if issue. It's a when issue. And that's why just three days ago, uh, SL Green announced a um, investor uh, or a joint venture on a property that they own on Park Avenue and uh, was unexpected. Uh, and the market got very excited about that. And our stock went up 12% or something, you know, over two days. And theirs went up a lot more than that. And so I think that shows you some investors said, look, um, you know, maybe that maybe now it's starting. Maybe that's the green shoot we've been waiting for. I also think there was some coverage of short interest uh, going on as well. But uh, but I just think that kind of shows you that there's that, that I think that I, that um, acknowledgement of the opportunity is out there. And it, the question is, what what are the markers that we're looking for from a timing perspective to to dive in? When does the capital? I mean, that was two forty five Park, right? So that's not a new building. Was, yeah. Right? yeah. When does the capital come off the sidelines and yeah. say, "How's the time?" Uh, now's the time. You know, it's cheap enough. Um, right. You know, and and uh, um, and I think you know, I think rates are a little bit related to that too, because if rates keep going up, you know, the cost of capital is still uncertain. So I think, I think you need to have this turnaround. I think you need interest rates to stop going up. You need more transactions like 245 Park, where investors are showing that they're prepared to invest in the asset class and investors are getting cap rates or IRRs or something that they can um, uh, they can ascribe some value to to understand, you know, what the what the disc what the discount from prior peak really was. And then I do think in the office space in general, we need demand. You know, we need, you know, capital market activity to improve. We need tech companies, maybe it's AI or something, that there's this new um, area of growth. You know, we need a few companies to announce, um, you know, growing their space, need additional space needs. And I think if you have those three things, that would certainly spark uh, more recovery in the public markets. Okay. I could ask you a lot more questions, but the last one I'll ask you is, as you look back on this fabulous accomplished career that you've had um what would you tell your 25 year old self today reflecting back well i think the um it took me a while to find it but you know i think try to figure out what you like to do and um and then lean into that and it creates more success for yourself and uh, more more reward for yourself um you know, and what I guess what I mean by that is, you know, I worked in real estate for my dad when I was 16 years old uh, and I got a real estate license in the state of Virginia. when I was 18 and I definitely liked that. But then I, you know, I did the engineering thing and tried that for a while then came back to real estate. And by the way, I left it again at Morgan Stanley because I went into asset management. And, and by the way, those were wonderful experiences. I wouldn't trade them for anything. But, you know, I came back to real estate and have had a, you know, very um, rewarding personal experience for myself. So I think it's kind of finding that industry uh, and that um, job function that you enjoy and um, sticking to it and leaning into it because it, right. you'll get better at it and you'll meet all the right people and create, you know, great relationships that you'll have your whole career. And, um, you know, it's just very, very rewarding. Good. 
as I, as I say to people, one of the luckiest days of my life was when a senior partner at my firm walked into my office and said, you will start working on the Boston Properties account. And I said, <laughs> of course, back then, yes, yeah. sir. Um, yeah. But it turned out to be just a wonderful, wonderful event for me. So well, thank Wonderful you. for us too, Jay. So okay. thank you for all you did for BXP over all these years. Well, thank you all. And this, this has been great. We really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Good to be with you.